Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. This morning to unpack what happened a couple of thousand years ago that we find testified to in Scripture. It all begins in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Where it says, it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. There's a person that was mentioned in these first three verses, and he's not often talked about, but Caesar Augustus. I want to tell you a little bit about this guy. Uh, I'm not going to give a prize this morning for which month of the year is named after him, Caesar Augustus. But his real name was Gaius Octavius. He was, just so you know, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. This guy knew people. He had influence. And so when Julius Caesar died, Octavius became the emperor and with it, the title of his position, which was Caesar. It's what my family refers to me in our home. Now, he should have been known as Octavius Caesar because that was his name. It was Octavius. However, he had quite an ego. This was just a, he was just a smidge arrogant. And that's an understatement because he wanted to be recognized that he was the greater than any of the Caesars that came before him. And so with the approval of the Roman Senate, he dropped his name Octavius and added the title Augustus, Caesar Augustus. And the word Augustus, just so you know, means majesty. For them, that was a name of a God. It carries an idea of being one of the gods. Caesar Augustus means Caesar God. Or at least that's how he wanted everybody to see him. Now let's go back just a little bit. After Julius Caesar was murdered in 44 BC, the Roman Empire, they erupted into a little bit of a civil war because the question is, is who's going to become the leader? They were already unsteady. Um, and there were two politicians that kind of cropped up as the forerunners. Even back then, they didn't believe in a third party system, you know? <laughs> One of them is Octavian and the other is a guy named Mark Antony. How many of you have ever heard of him? Mark Antony had been a loyal supporter of Julius Caesar. Uh, He had served in the Senate. He had also been a well-respected general abroad. And um, he was expected to be named the successor to Julius Caesar. That is until everybody opened up and read Julius Caesar's will to find out that instead he wanted Octavian to be the guy. Well, that's a problem because you have those that are loyal to Mark Antony, but then you've got the wishes of Julius Caesar expressed in his will. So what do you do? The Senate is divided. And so what happened is Mark Antony ends up deciding, I'm gonna make some political moves. Hard to believe. I mean, this was way back when. People don't do this nowadays. But he decides to make some political moves. And he says, I'm gonna get somebody that's gonna be on my side. And so he does. It's a lady and her name is Queen Cleopatra. Antony and Cleopatra. Well, that was, uh, when you talk about her, she was a pretty pragmatic kind of lady. And in fact, she had something that would be a little bit of a trump card because she was the one that had Julius Caesar's child. So now you've got Julius Caesar who has named someone that he wants to follow him up. 
But you also have Mark Antony on the other side who has aligned himself with Cleopatra who has Julius Caesar's child. Gotta admit, politically, that's pretty savvy. Wouldn't you agree? Because now you're coming to go against Julius Caesar's kid if you wanna go with that guy. But that's what was going on. Well, as you know, the way that it works out is there's just a little bit of a skirmish, also known as a battle, which ends in uh, the battle of Actium and Octavian wins the battle. What happens to Mark Antony and Cleopatra, I'm not gonna explain here, but it's more or less like a Shakespearean style death between the two of them. And so Octavian, who later becomes known as Caesar Augustus, he is the one that steps in to rule. Now he has a political platform that I'm going to bet you will not hear any of the people that are running for president hold out in front of you in this upcoming year. And it was, I'm going to tax you because that's what he said. I'm going to send everybody back to their place of origin so that I'll know who you are and so that I can get your money. That's what Luke chapter two, verse one and verse three was saying. He made a decree to everyone to go back to their hometown and to be registered. So if he knows who you are, if he knows where you're from, he knows how to get your cash. Now, I don't wanna say that everything is all bad about Caesar Augustus because as historians would point out, he ushers in what is called the Pax Romana, otherwise known as the Peace of Rome. And if you've read anything about Roman history, they weren't exactly known for being peaceful. It was war after war after war after war. So that sounds good, at least on the front end, doesn't it? 200 years, like 200 years of the Pax Romana. Sounds like this guy actually accomplished something pretty amazing until you start to kind of peel the onion a little bit and look back because what he did was as they would go to battle and they would take over an area, what he would do is he would enlist more military to go in and to occupy that, that place. And because you can't rule over everybody because you can well be in one place at one time, he decides to put his right or left-hand men in charge over the military to suppress any potential uprisings that might come from the people that they had taken over. There was a reason that there was peace and it was because if you rose up, you were going to get killed. And so most people were like, eh, you know, We'll take it easy. And as long as we're able to eat and whatnot, it's fine. On the other hand, you know what this meant? If you're gonna raise up that much more military and you're gonna pay them well so that they'll be loyal to you, that money has to come from somewhere. And so taxes, you get to pay for it. That's what he did. Well, all of that is a little bit of background to what was happening in Luke chapter two. Not, not even to mention the guards that he wanted around him because he knew what had happened to Julius Caesar who was ruled before him. And this is where, because of Caesar Augustus, you have the famous Praetorian Guard is established. Upwards of 4,500 bodyguards for this. I mean, you think you've got bodyguards? This guy had the bodyguards. He had the best of the best. All you gotta do is fork up the cash and he can have all of this. And you have this assemblance of peace where they're actually really wasn't any, you just had domination. All of this is going on. That's the guy that is mentioned in the first three verses of the famous Christmas passage in Luke chapter two. This is also what helps to make sense out of a little bit of a journey that Joseph and Mary got to go on because they had to go back and they had to register themselves. But in doing so, they fulfilled the prophecy that you find in the book of Micah chapter five, verse two where it says, Bethlehem, 
Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. And so 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah said, it's not just that he's going to be born, here's where he's going to be born. And so a prophecy is fulfilled. Now, before all of this happened and before Joseph and Mary got on their journey, unsurprisingly, God was already at work. For example, he was at work in the heart of a young woman named Mary. Mary was probably a teenager. I mean, imagine being 15-ish years old. Some think even younger. But imagine being 15 years old, already engaged to Joseph. And the way this worked back then was families would basically agree with each other. He's going to marry her. And then they would have this agreement. Right, And then there would be this time where the, the soon-to-be husband, he would go off, he would establish the home, he would establish his career, and then he would come back and there would be this huge wedding ceremony that everybody would celebrate the union of these two people. Now, where Mary and Joseph are in the time of this place is they're not at the point where they're living together. They're not at the point where they are physically intimate with each other, but they are legally considered to be married to one another because the families have agreed to this. This is what's going on. And then an angel shows up and throws a wrench into the whole thing. And you find it in Luke chapter one, verse 30 through 32. An angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now let's imagine being Mary for just a second. One is having something appear in front of you and starting talking to you and you might be thinking, I don't know. I mean, what did I eat for lunch today? Maybe she had a thought like that. But more than likely, she was giving a whole lot more thought to what it was that the angel said to her. Can you imagine the questions that were going on in her teenage mind? Because there are already plenty of questions and hormones going on in the teenage mind anyway. But let's lump this on top of this girl. What's Joseph gonna think about this? Especially when she goes to him and says, hey, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Well, the first thing that Joseph is gonna know is, ain't me. He knows that. He also knows how women get pregnant. There's no medical mystery in all of this. And so right off the bat, you know what Mary is thinking? When I tell this to this guy, he is not gonna be a happy camper. And you know what's probably not going to make it any better is if I say, don't worry, God is the one that impregnated me through the Holy Spirit because Joseph is probably gonna be like, nice try, nice try. I mean, that is a really clever come around to try to sell me to not walk off from you. Think about this. All of this is weighing on this girl's mind. No way Joseph is gonna buy this story. This means that Mary can probably kiss the marriage goodbye. Joseph is going to dump her, is her guess, and that she's gonna end up having to raise this kid on her own. That's tough. There's also going to be a scandal. It's gonna bring a scandal to his family. It's gonna bring a scandal to her family. 
It is going to bring a scandal to the name of her child because they lived in a culture of shame. This child would be called a mamzer. We actually have a derogatory term for that today. When you talk about a woman that bears a child without a father that is present, it is not meant to be a good thing. And she's sitting here thinking, how is this going to look for me? How is this going to look for him? How does all this work out? Like, how does all this work out? You have to know all that was going on in this girl's head. And yet, in Luke chapter one, verse 38, how does she reply? I am the Lord's servant. I'm the Lord's servant. And may your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. Now there's another person, Joseph. You probably have heard of him. Initially, uh, you know, she was pretty spot on. She thought, what is Joseph gonna wanna do? And she thought, he's gonna wanna divorce me, like a legal separation of this agreement between our families. That's what Joseph is gonna wanna do. And you know what? She was exactly right. She was exactly right. However, as he started to think about, I, I, I cannot do this, I can't. Look at Matthew chapter one, verses 20 and 21. After he is considering this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Well, can you imagine for a second what's going on in Joseph's mind? He too is probably wondering if it was something that he ate earlier that day. If he takes Mary as his wife, people are going to talk. You know why? Is that's because people do. They don't have control over their yaps. And he knows this. He knows it's the way it's gonna go. They're going to make an assumption that he and Mary, though they're not at the point where they are to consummate their marriage, they're just gonna assume it. You know why? Because that's how women get pregnant. And it's going to bring dishonor to him. It's gonna bring dishonor to his family. It's going to impact his job. When you, when you faced dishonor in that culture, it impacted everything. It wasn't just the way people saw you. So people aren't gonna do business with you either. And Joseph is sitting there going, how, like, how does all of this work out? However, because of that, because they knew that everything was gonna be hard when they obey God, in spite of all that, they said, we're gonna follow you. So some of you friends have had to say the same thing, that when you say that you're going to give yourself to God, you don't know in advance everything that comes with that. You don't know the trials and the tribulations that come with that. What you know is that God has made a promise to you that he'll honor you. And so Mary and Joseph said, let's go, let's go. Some of the things that they didn't know in advance, they didn't know that they'd be forced by the Roman government to travel about 90 miles on foot from Nazareth to Bethlehem in the final stages of Mary's pregnancy. They didn't know that. Ladies, I don't know how many of you have had a child, but let me ask you a question. How many of you would have wanted to travel by foot somewhere to the tune of 80 to 90 miles when you're in roughly your 38th, 39th week of pregnancy. Let's see those hands this morning. Yeah, well, they got to do that. And imagine being Joseph. I mean, he's walking alongside her. He's the one that's traveling with her. He's trying to get her to the place that because of what has been proclaimed by the government, he's trying to get her there. They also didn't know that when they got to Bethlehem, there weren't gonna be any rooms available. And at this point, I just look at Joseph and go, dude, <laughs> I mean, 
So they finally make the journey. They finally get there. They walk in, it's like, is there a place to stay? And it's like, nope. And Joseph's walking out like, I've got bad news, girl. I mean, I know that you're wanting to get off your feet. We just don't have a place for you to get off your feet just yet. Do you think that there was ever any moment at this where he looks at her and she looks at him and goes, I'm tired. I mean, I'm just tired. I'm gonna bet the answer is yes. I'm gonna bet. You know what else they didn't know when they said that they would follow God? They didn't know that even after the birth of Jesus, that King Herod in Jerusalem was gonna wanna murder their baby and that they were gonna have to run for their lives in the middle of the night. They didn't know that in advance. It wasn't like this, follow me. But by the way, when you do, this is everything that's gonna happen. They didn't say it. They didn't know this was gonna happen. They didn't know that pretty much right off the bat, they finally have this kid that's supposed to be a promise of blessing and the salvation to the nations, that they were gonna have to go to Egypt and be homeless refugees. They didn't know any of this stuff. But in, in giving us Jesus, God said something to us. Because at Christmas, God said yes to sending his son into this world. He said yes to becoming one of us. He said yes to taking on our humanity. He said yes to walking through all of the brokenness. He said yes to all of this. Jesus said yes to a lot of suffering. He said yes to a Roman cross. And he said yes to a borrowed grave. He said yes to all of this. All so that we can be reconciled to him. There's this beautiful passage in 2 Peter 1.4. Where he said, and because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. He's given you the way out. Now, what he wasn't saying in 2 Peter 1.4 is that when you take Christ, you become divine. He's not saying that at all. Instead, what he's saying is, is when you receive Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit that enables you to partner with him in destroying the corrupt nature that you have and that sin that flows out of it. That's why I came. A couple of weeks ago, I was having a really interesting conversation with an agnostic friend of mine. We've been doing this for a couple of years now. And with Christmas coming up, we inevitably started to have some conversations about the birth of Jesus, the significance of the birth of Jesus. And he said, you know, there's just something that I've never understood. And, uh, and it's why, I mean, why, why? Why, why Jesus walking the earth? Why, or as we would frame it, why the incarnation? Why take on human flesh? It's like, seems like there are just other ways that God can do all of this to me. Now, he didn't give me any of the other ways that God could have done this, but he just kind of felt it deeply in his heart. And he and I have these great conversations because it's all about religion and politics, all the fun stuff that nobody wants to talk about. But after I walked away, uh, I was thinking about something that I'd heard some years ago in listening to a story with my grandmother from Paul Harvey. Y'all remember the rest of the story. Here's why, why the incarnation? This family had a tradition where the mother and children would go to Christmas Eve service and the father would stay at home and read the paper. When the family returns home from church, they would all gather to open up their presents. 
Now, the father was not an evil man, but he just couldn't believe in the childhood stories anymore of God coming as a baby in a manger. And as the family left for church, he opened up the evening paper and he began to read by the fireplace. Late one raw winter night, he sat alone in the house reading. In the quiet, he heard an irregular thumping against the back porch door. So he flipped on the light. To his surprise, the birds that had made their nests in a nearby tree were flying against the glass, almost trying to, like they were knocking to come inside. The limb on which they had built their nest had fallen under the weight of the ice and the snow, and his heart went out to them. He pulled his snow boots and overcoat, and he pushed open the storm door, and immediately the birds fluttered away. Against the knee-deep snow, he made his way out to the barn, He slid open the barn and wondered how he could get the frightened birds into its warmth and into its safety. He built a massive nest out of hay, but they wouldn't come near. He sprinkled some crackers in the path from their tree toward the barn, but they didn't follow. He tried to shoo them in, but they only scattered. He even lit a couple of candles inside the barn, hoping the added warmth would draw them in. But to the birds, He was only something to be afraid of. He knew nothing of their language and nothing of their world. And and he thought, if there were just some way that I could become a bird, if only for a few moments I could communicate with them how much I care, I could get them into the barn and they would be safe and warm. And at that moment, as only God would plan it, church bells began to ring in the distance. And then suddenly the farmer remembered as he looked at his watch and he checked the date, it was Christmas. And at that moment, he grasped the true meaning of Christmas. A man becoming a bird is nothing to be compared to God's becoming a man. This was what the savior did. He came to rescue the farmer himself and all of humanity from the cold of sin. And so there in the snow, on the back porch, he fell to his knees. He softened his heart and he returned himself to God. I like the way that C.S. Lewis said it in Mere Christianity. The son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's Christmas. But we have to be clear this morning, my friends. The celebration of the incarnation of Jesus, God in flesh, it's a rescue mission. It's what it is. The way the gospels say it, he came to seek and save the lost. That's why he showed up at all. He came to put a broken world back together. Do you remember Luke chapter two, verse 10 and 11? I bring you good news of great joy for all people. So it's for you. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And when he talks about the Savior, that means he's saving you from something. And we have this promise in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise to you this morning. So let me, let me go back to my, my agnostic friend again. Love that guy to death. And as the conversation was unfolding, uh, inevitably we turned to this because when he said why the incarnation of Jesus, 
I said, because we have a sin-sick world. And he said, you know, I just don't like the word sin very much. Do you know anybody like that? I just don't like the word sin very much. I was like, okay. Well, can we agree that people make mistakes? And he goes, yes. I said, we have a word for that. <laughs> so I was being a little snarky, but it was fun. We have a word for that. It's, I go, I know, I know where you're going with that. I said, okay, put the word down for a second. Consider something that I think a pastor once said that I think is very insightful on this. He said, if you need to change the vocabulary about this, that's fine. He said, but don't ignore the diagnosis. You have a trip to the doctor. You describe your symptoms. And then you find out after you've been to the doctor, oh, there's a word for this. But the, the trouble with pretending that you are healthy is that you miss out on the healing. I'm here to tell you something this morning. You can be as close to God as you want to be. You can be as close to God as you want to be. Look at James chapter four, verse eight. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He will. This morning, I just hope you would. So we're gonna spend some time in prayer. I wanna give like a couple of challenges this morning. Is that okay? Here's one. For those of you that are believers in Christ, I want this Christmas to be a season of renewal for you. I want it to be a season of renewal for you. When, when he came to this earth and he took on our suffering, he took on a cross, he did that for us. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever minimalize that. And I, I'm with Eugene Peterson in this. You know, he, he looked and he saw, and this was a couple of decades ago, by the way. He looked at the state of the church and it grieved his soul because we became so preoccupied with everything else that we literally choked Jesus out of our life. And then we look and we go, I don't know why I can't feel him. And I don't know why I can't hear him. Maybe you're not in a place where you even can. Too busy. Your schedule has choked him out. I put that in front of you, not to beat you up if that's you, but to say this, reclaim it today. Reclaim the centrality of Jesus in your heart and in your affections. Build everything around that as he desires for you. Do that. But maybe this morning you came here and you've never, ever confessed Christ. Never. The, the journey in your relationship with him begins there. It only begins there. But it's the most important decision that you will ever make in your life is what you do with him. Scripture tells us this, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you are saved. You are saved from the sin that is a part of your life. You're saved from the brokenness that came with it. You're saved. You're saved. Jesus, the hope of the world, our Savior was born. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.